I'm Alex Jones. I'm director of the Shorenstein Center on the Press, Politics, and Public Policy. And it's my great pleasure, genuinely great pleasure, to welcome back one of our fellows uh, that we are especially glad to see uh, in the pink. <laughs> uh, all of you are aware, I'm sure, of uh, the story that uh, has been detailed with such grace and uh, depth and harrowing suspense in the New York Times uh, of the kidnapping of David Rode by the Taliban, his being held hostage for a prolonged period of time, uh, and then his uh, escape through his own wiles and good fortune and help from, uh, from a colleague. I think that the the issue for us today is not so much David's experience as a hostage, but his analysis of the role of Pakistan in the uh, rise of the Taliban and the current state of affairs in that part of the world. Uh, I have asked him to come speak to us about that, <clears throat> which he, I am looking forward to hearing what he has to say, and then he will be willing to answer questions and whatever areas that uh, you might wish. But I need to put a caveat on this. Um, David's situation is one that um, continues to reverberate because there are other people and other lives at stake. And so I have told him that he should use his own best judgment about, you know, what he feels like he can and can't say. And uh, there may be some topics that he may really not even want to engage in. But I think that the the main fact is this. Uh, David is an extraordinary journalist. Uh, he went through an incredibly harrowing time. Uh, but he is also someone who has given a great deal of thought to the situation in that part of the world. He has been there. He has uh, risked his life reporting there. And uh, I think that what he has to say about it is certainly well worth our time listening to. And we are certainly especially glad to see you back with us, David. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I'm uh, thrilled to be uh, back here, uh, and I had a wonderful time as a fellow here in 2005 at the Shorenstein Center, and it was a, um, a wonderful experience. Um, I want this to be a conversation, so I'll speak briefly in the beginning, but I really want to take um, as many questions as possible from you. Um, I, uh, I'll first be honest with you, I'm a little intimidated by this crowd. Um, because uh, uh, I spoke last night to the Neiman Fellows. Um, right here is Peter Moss is a Shorenstein Fellow, but he was at this, the event last night. Alex was there as well. So I don't want to repeat too much of what I said last night. Um, Clayton Jones, who was my editor at the Christian Science Monitor, is sitting right here. He knows the last time I got myself in trouble in Bosnia. Um, and, the, uh, and my Aunt Ruthie is sitting right here as well who intimidates me the most. Um, <laughs> there was a joke among my family members that uh, they were uh, so angry when I uh, was kidnapped in Afghanistan because it was the second time I'd put them through this. Um, the joke was that if I'd been quickly released after a few weeks, I could have faced like more serious bodily harm for my family. <laughs> uh, so, so many months went by that I guess they, they eased up on me. Um, but. Uh, Ruthie and other relatives went to the peace talks in Dayton, Ohio, when I was uh, detained in Bosnia for 10 days by the Bosnian Serbs, and uh, she was instrumental, along with the Christian Science Monitor, of getting me uh, released then. So, um, and there are also some experts here that I just met with this morning over at the Carr Center on Afghanistan and Pakistan, and they know the region in some ways better than I do. So again, this should be a conversation. Um, about uh, what to do there now, and then a conversation about journalists and the risks we all face. Um, in terms of Pakistan, and I'll just keep this short and sort of wing it, um, you know, the takeaway from my experience there was that, uh, you know, and, I, if, and some of you have probably read the series I wrote about this, but the main thrust was that the, the Taliban are operating a, uh, a mini-state today in North Waziristan and Pakistan's tribal areas, uh, you know, inside the borders. Um, the, of Pakistan itself, um, you know, as recently as uh, several weeks ago, um, there were press reports about Secretary Gates going to Islamabad and specifically pressuring the Pakistani government and the Pakistani army to go into this area, North Waziristan, um, and regain control of it from the Taliban. 
Uh, to the Pakistani army's credit, they have been very aggressive in the last year in uh, confronting the Taliban. They moved into the Swat Valley, that area near Islamabad that got so much press attention in the spring. Um, the Taliban melted away, but the Pakistani army did seize control of the main towns there. They moved into large parts of the tribal areas, and they also moved into South Waziristan. Um, that was an area where I was held captive as well, and that's, that's tremendous progress. But the bottom line from the recent trip by Secretary Gates was that the Pakistani army said they would not be mounting any offensive into North Waziristan for at least the next six months. Um, and the importance of this isn't simply my case. Um, the Haqqani Network, the group that uh, kidnapped me and, and sort of runs most Taliban operations in eastern Afghanistan, they are believed to be responsible for the, 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 all, most of uh, the, the high-profile attacks in Kabul that have occurred. The last two attacks you may have seen in the press, uh, one was on a UN guest house uh, a month or so ago. That was the Haqqani Network. And then just the attack two weeks ago um, on the Central Bank and right near the Presidential Palace. That's also believed to be the Haqqanis. So one of the arguments I'll make is that um, you know, the United States can, you know, is sending these additional troops, and I think there will be improvements on the ground. I've got uh, a couple friends. Uh, one British journalist was recently in Helmand, this province in the south, where a lot more American Marines are going in. Uh, there are improvements there, um, and a friend of mine, Chris Chivers, is over there now embedded with American Marines. But so these American military forces, the military surge will, I think, improve things on the ground. Uh, there's a civilian surge going on as well. That will improve things in the short term. But as long as there remains these safe havens in Pakistan, as long as the Pakistani army will not go into North Waziristan, um, Afghanistan, you know, will not and cannot be stabilized. Um, I, I, you know, obviously have a, a personal feeling about uh, North Waziristan, but I, 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 that's my analysis of the situation. And um, the reason that the Pakistani army, I think, is not going into North Waziristan is, is its continued tensions with India. Um, most Pakistani troops continue to be positioned along the uh, border with India. Um, you know, the Pakistani military said they don't have enough troops to send them into North Waziristan. They, they would if they were willing to move more units from the border with India. Um, and this gets into this very complex issue of India-Pakistan tensions. And um, the Obama administration has come in with a lot more energy and attention to Afghanistan and Pakistan, but it seems like they've had a difficult job um, dealing with that, the, the central problem, which is the regional dynamic um, uh, and, and how do you uh, reduce the tensions between India and Pakistan uh, and, how, and how do you um, eliminate these safe havens. Um, one thing I mentioned last night and I want to mention today is that there are good things happening in, um, in Pakistan. And I don't want, um, you know, I, in no way, shape, or form were the people who kidnapped me representative of most Pakistanis or most Pashtuns um, in Afghanistan or Pakistan. Um, and people have asked me, um, you know, whether I'm hopeless about the region, and I'm not at all. Um, you know, there was one group of people in Pakistan who kidnapped me. There was also uh, a very brave group of people, the, the guards and the, uh, this young captain who was the commander of the Pakistani military base, base that led us inside after we escaped, um, and they, they saved our lives. So um, I, I'm, I'm, I do think that there are positive things happening in Pakistan. In particular, I support the, there's been a large growth in the independent media in Pakistan. Uh, it started with GEO, which was a 24-hour um, Urdu language uh, news station. There's now four or five of them. Um, there's been some frustration, I think, among American government officials about the reporting on these stations, saying that it's too anti-American. Um, at the same time, these stations, uh, one of them was instrumental in broadcasting a videotape of the Taliban beating a young woman in the Swat Valley who had been accused of uh, uh, immoral activities, according to them. And, and the videos they showed of some of the Taliban activities and their coverage of how the Taliban acted in the SWAT area, um, I think, um, played a role in informing Pakistanis about uh, the Taliban and some of the tactics they use. Um, and what's interesting, too, and as an issue as a journalist, is that, um, and this gets into the, the internet, which we can, you know, can be endlessly debated about its positive and negative impacts. Um, there is a growing campaign today in Pakistan against the independent media. There's various websites that are attacking 
um, the independent media. And I, I printed out this one thing, which was an email I got. I'm on this list. Um, it's from this group that, that modifies itself as sort of patriotic Pakistanis. And they're, they're constantly um, reporting these conspiracy theories that, uh, that, all, um, that essentially India is creating the problems in the tribal areas, that there really isn't a problem with the Taliban. Um, I can tell you right now, I was kidnapped by Taliban. I wasn't kidnapped by you know, Indian intelligence agents. Uh, there really is a problem of militancy in the tribal areas. But they, they're continuously accusing um, uh, Pakistani journalists of being um, CIA fronts. Um, and, and these are journalists that share the same values as, as you know, as, as journalists, not as Americans or Pakistanis, but as journalists. They, most of them are very responsible in trying to get out the truth. But this was just a recent mailing from January 24th uh, from one of these groups that uh, is attacking the independent media in Pakistan. And it's um, in pictures, CIA hosts drinks and dance party for Pakistani journalists at U.S. Embassy in Islamabad. Um, and what this appears to have been is that they were able to pull, and there's no great point to this, but it's just interesting to me, these look like these were pictures pulled off of some embassy staffer's Facebook page. And what it is is it's, it is a, um, it was a reception hosted in the U.S. ambassador's house. Um, and it was basically, and they have these events where they'll mix with Pakistani journalists. Um, but what they, what happened is that these guys somehow picked up these pictures um, and they, they call this, you know, CIA public relations at work. Um, and there's other pages of this that talk about how basically like the, how the CIA controls how all Pakistanis think and this vast um, conspiracy by the CIA to, to control the Pakistani media. And they're basically pictures. These two women here um, are actually well-known uh, Pakistani uh, news anchors. And it's, it's just a picture of them with some American, um, uh, with some American guy. But it's basically this idea that, that they're, they're, what they refer to them as, uh, they call them prostitutes as in prostitutes, and that you know, all of these uh, independent journalists in Pakistan are, um, are somehow part of a vast American conspiracy. So um, I'm happy to answer your questions, but the point of bringing up these people is, again, um, you know, if you read the series, and I'll, I'll talk about my time in captivity, and I can tell you really depressing and scary stories about the mentality of the Taliban, but there's, there's another side to Pakistan, and I... Um, I wanted to emphasize that, that, that side as well, that there are moderates um, that they don't want a, you know, an American-style democracy, and they don't want the Taliban either. They want uh, a strong and independent Pakistan. And um, you know, one of the central questions for me is how do we, um, how do we support moderates more effectively in, these, in this country, or, or just even institutions like independent journalism? Um, and, and it's not an impossible um, uh, thing to achieve, and it's it's more important than ever to support them. Um, and I just don't want my experience and my kidnapping to give you too negative an impression about the situation in Pakistan today. So, good news about the Pakistani media frustration with the Pakistani army's failure to go into North Waziristan. Let me uh, ask the first question, and then we'll open it up. Um, my impression uh, is that during the Bush administration, the American government was very um, conscious of any criticism in the so-called independent press that was anti-American, as you, as you described. And as a result, they, they missed the point of what news is in many cases uh, and how a free press is actually a model for um, a, a set of values rather than a set of facts. Do you think the Obama administration is understands this better from the perspective that most journalists hold that the that the very fact of a free press is something that will albeit the New York Times or the United States may be criticized is really in the interest of this thing that you're describing of an independent Pakistan that is not Taliban. Uh, no, I've heard from Pakistani journalists that there's uh, frustration and criticism from the Obama administration about some of the commentary on these Pakistani stations. And some of the commentary is, you know, frankly, pro-Taliban. And some of the anchors on these stations, and these are, uh, this is, this is the, I guess, the American equivalent. Of the, this is the, the approach on these stations is much closer to sort of the MSNBC, Fox approach, where there's a clear political agenda that's coming across. But they've been told that there's frustration that they, uh, with their approach, 
when the, I didn't see the broadcast, but a Pakistani journalist told me that when this video was aired of the young woman being uh, whipped, and I think there's been other videos that have been aired of, uh, you know, Pakistanis being, being, you know, who were declared spies being uh, killed by the Taliban, the way it was presented was they first showed videos that said sort of some version of the, the title was uh, war crimes or crimes against humanity by the West or by the Americans, and they showed first civilians who had been killed in Afghanistan and Iraq, and then they were like, you know, and then crimes committed by the Taliban, and then they'd show the negative, you know, the Taliban whipping this girl. And it, I think it frustrated American officials that there was trying to draw a moral equivalency between the two groups. Um, Musharraf hated the independent press, and when he had his state of emergency in 2007, he shut down all the TV stations. That was the first thing he did. Um, and he, to his credit, helped them come out. The, there, there had been no independent television stations in Pakistan until Musharraf's rule, but it became this Frankenstein he couldn't control. And I, you're right, though. They need to accept the institution that the, the press drives politicians crazy, but they, they, they have to live with it. Um, I'm going to open the floor to questions, but I would ask that the uh, floor first opportunity be given to students and others at the uh, Kennedy School that are in, in, in students at Harvard or at the Kennedy School. If you would raise your hand. You will be acknowledged. Yes. Um, yesterday, uh, welcome, by the way. Welcome Thank you. Back. Thanks. Um, I'm a, a mid-career student, and I served at the Department of Homeland Security. I was the former press secretary. And um, <laughs> so, so the press, the I, press frustrates you. I no, I'm um, <laughs> still actually quite close to most of our press corps. Um, but um, yesterday, um, some of us attended a, a, a talk. Um, And um, he spoke about the need for uh, the, not necessarily the Pakistani army to be involved, but more of the law enforcement and training law enforcement to go into some of these private regions. And he was talking about, you know, exactly as you said, the issue of Indian foreign troops sort of on the border. So what are your thoughts on using law enforcement in some of these tribal regions versus the army? Um, I think the army's got to go in first. And... Um, and I'm, we'll talk about, and someone should ask, or will ask about the idea of, of um, are there reconcilable Taliban or not? Um, I think there are some that are not, and there has to be military force used against them. That's, and again, this is a difficult situation for me, I have to be honest. You know, I was held captive by these people for seven months, so I can't claim I, I'm an impartial observer. But I think the Army's got to go in first. But uh, Afghanistan or Pakistan or any country, even the United States, you've got to have effective local uh, police forces um, in the long term. Um, and I think there's a big American effort to train the, the Frontier Corps. This is, these are the people whose base I went to. Um, uh, I saw many, you know, some Frontier Corps when I was moved around the tribal areas, and they were all sort of disarmed and not really fighting the Taliban uh, that I saw. So I, I don't think you can simply send in police. He's right about, you know, you need that. You need the police element for long-term stability. Um, one separate thing on, on you know, military force versus development, um, there's no question that development is the key thing in the long term, and education is absolutely right, and you know, I, you know, I support very much Greg Mortensen's work. One caveat is um, I was uh, held prisoner at different times in Waziristan, in, uh, uh, first in a health clinic that had been built by the Pakistani government, uh, to win the hearts and minds of the local population. Uh, there was a sort of thing written in concrete that had, that had been built in 2005. That was taken over by a Taliban commander and made into my, uh, you know, our little detention center. And then uh, later on I was held in a school that had been built uh, by the Pakistani government to train uh, local women in the tribal areas who have terrible literacy rates. I mean, they get no education whatsoever, but it was built for women in particular to help them make textiles that could be sold and exported abroad. Again, that was also taken over by the Taliban. Um, um, and the point being, if you don't have security, you know, all of your other efforts are going to fail. Your police reform, your political reforms, your economic reforms. Um, you, you can't just uh, build schools and, and that will solve everything. Yes, sir. Uh, I don't think that everybody heard your question. Let me repeat okay. it. If you could just give us your understanding of the relationship between different factions of the Pakistani government and the Taliban. 
That's the, the million dollar question. That's a very good question. It, it's what's the relationship between the Pakistani, different parts of the Pakistani government and the Taliban. Um, there's basically, it all comes down to the ISI, which is the lead, you know, the military intelligence agency there. Um, you know, the United States, with the help of the Pakistani intelligence and Saudi intelligence, created the, you know, the strict form of Wahhabi Islam in Pakistan that it's now fighting today. They created it in the 1980s you know, to fight the Soviet Union. It was a, and obviously in hindsight, it was a, it was a, it's become a disastrous policy. And the, the question is, um, I think there's no question that, and what's happened in Pakistan is that there's, you know, uh, and maybe for you, those of you who know this, I apologize, but, uh, you know, there's the Pakistani Taliban led previously by Baitullah Massoud and Hakimullah Massoud, which have been declared enemies of the state and the army is attacking them. They went into South Waziristan and secured that area. And then there's other Taliban, let's call that, so that's the Pakistani Taliban, and those are the bad Taliban, we, we, you could say, according to the, to the ISI and the Pakistani army. And then they have basically turned a blind eye towards the Afghan Taliban, and that would be the Haqqani network, the people in North Waziristan who held me hostage, and then uh, all, equally or more importantly, the Afghan Taliban that are in the city of Quetta, um, down another part of the border, um, that they have also, there's been a blind eye torn, turned towards them. There's universal agreement that the, that the ISI and the army is turning a blind eye and not stopping any of the activities of the Quetta Shura down in the south or the Haqqani network. There are some American officials that say the ISI is providing money, uh, weapons, um, and strategic guidance to the Haqqanis. Um, I've talked to other American officials that say that question of whether there's active assistance is the, one of the most hotly debated topics in the American intelligence community t today. And two officials have told me there isn't definitive evidence that that is happening. Um, and maybe this is all getting down in the weeds. Um, but, you know, just to, to be fair, you know, and then, and there are people who've worked, Americans who've worked closely with the ISI that say, you, you know, that these, the Afghan Taliban are sort of a Frankenstein for the ISI, that the, that the ISI has kind of lost control of them as well, that, that we overestimate the ability of the ISI to control what's happening in the tribal areas, that nobody can control it. Um, that's one set, uh, that's one view of it, um, the sort of, I guess, more lenient view of the ISI. Uh, uh, people, particularly Americans that have served in Afghanistan, are much more uh, dubious of the ISI, and they think they are actively um, aiding them. The most damning evidence, and again, back to the Haqqani network and the importance of this sanctuary, there was a massive bombing of the Indian Embassy in Kabul um, that occurred last year, and there was proof of the ISI working with the Haqqanis to carry out that attack in Kabul. Again, it was an attack on the Indian Embassy or back into the India-Pakistan dynamic, um, but that's the rough lay of the land. It's, it's still this debated thing, but there's no question they let them do what they want. And I saw that you know, driving around with Ziristan. There was It's a totally Haqqani-run state. There's no Pakistani president. Yes, sir. Good afternoon. My name is Ziaz Nader. I'm the 10th legislative director of Kennedy School. One of the issues for people who follow this region, and particularly the tribal areas, is just about the quality of information that's coming out of there. Obviously, it's very hard to know, and even people on the ground are struggling with what exactly is happening. And we see this, for example, with the issue of is Ahmadan Masood dead or is he not dead? Yep. So from your perspective as a journalist, what's the process by which you're sifting through information, trying to corroborate, trying to ascertain whether what, what exactly is happening here, and what, by extension, can you tell people who are further removed, sitting out in the U.S., to look for in terms of sort of quality control and that information? Um, it's an enormous problem. I was really nervous about my series because what can I really say based on the, you know, I, I had three guards at a time. There was maybe a group, a total group of five. They would kind of rotate out. I was with these people all the time. I had various commanders come and meet with me, but is that you know representative of you know the Taliban as a whole? It's not. You know, I, it was somewhat representative of what I felt of the Haqqani network, and that one of the people I met was Badruddin Haqqani, who is one of the he's the brother of Siraj Haqqani, the, the head of the Haqqani network. But broadly speaking, you know, we don't know what's happening in the tribal areas. Um, it's obviously too dangerous for a Western to go in there. It's it's incredibly dangerous for Pakistani journalists. Again, many more uh, Pakistanis are being kidnapped in the tribal areas. Um, uh, 
many more Pakistani journalists have been killed than Western journalists in Afghanistan and Pakistan. It's much more dangerous for Pakistanis, and, and they get much less attention. But you know, no one knows, and I, it's a it's a big problem. Um, and I, you have to be very careful as a journalist because you'll get people telling you they know what's happening there, but they don't. Um, and and so when I wrote that, I tried to, you know, include anecdotes that seemed to fit. I, I don't know. I, I maybe it was a mistake. I, I debated with my editors about the whole series, but. Um, it's very hard to know when you're extrapolating too much from an anecdote and when it's actually representative of a broader trend. The last thing is I'll say, I, I, I um, ran into a, um, a, a person who does polling in Pakistan. And um, there's, like, I, I think it's over 90% of Pakistanis oppose the US drone strikes that are being carried out in the tribal areas. The one part of the country where um, there was support for the drone strikes, according to his polling numbers, is actually from the tribal areas itself. And based on what I saw in the tribal areas, I think that might be accurate. Um, and maybe this is wishful thinking, but um, the Taliban are very repressive in how they run that area. There was a tremendous fear we would hear about in bits and pieces of the Haqqanis among the local population in the tribal areas. And uh, one anecdote that was in the story in terms of, and I think this, and again, maybe this is wishful thinking from an American perspective. That, but when militants control areas, they can be so brutal that the local population will turn against them. Uh, I don't know, you know, I've been in Iraq a few times, but I think that's part of the dynamic that happened in Anbar. Um, and that may be happening in the tribal areas now, but people are, are sort of terrified of the Haqqanis. Anyway, one example, and this was in the series, was that there was a drone strike near the house we were being held in, and uh, local militants uh, uh, arrested a farmer near us and, uh, um, you know, declared him an American spy who had guided the drone strike and uh, they um, interrogated him, and they chopped off his leg and disemboweled him. Uh, at that point, he confessed to being an American spy. And then they beheaded him and, and hung his body in the local market. So it's a terrifying place, the tribal areas. And it's terrifying, for, not for you know, the very rare Western hostage. It's terrifying for the, the tribal people that are, are stuck there, I think. Um, so it's really a, a sad situation. Students? Gene. Uh, Gene Gibbons, I'm Sean Sinfellow. Uh, the gentleman who spoke yesterday said that one hopeful sign was that there was a lot of cooperation now at the field grade level between the Pakistan Army and U.S. troops in Afghanistan. And yet I've read and I've heard that uh, uh, American troops have come under fire uh, from Pakistani outposts. Uh, which is the, the correction? I think that. Um there, there have been, I think the Pakistani army is the most professional. I don't think Pakistani army soldiers are, have ever fired on American soldiers. I think the frontier corps, this kind of tribal militia that, you know, to our surprise and great luck helped us is a mixed bag that there might be some members of the frontier corps that are either pro-Taliban or so afraid because they're surrounded by Taliban that they'll you know, they, there's all kinds of stories I heard from the American military of Taliban walking right past these frontier corps posts and, you know, on the border and, and they don't do anything to stop them. And there was some cases of firing from frontier corps positions. So as an institution, you know, I, I, I respect the Pakistani army. Um, I don't think there's a problem. You'll have some speculation about is Pakistan's nuclear arsenal safe or not. I think it absolutely is. And again, it gets back to India, Pakistan, India, Pakistan. The Pakistani army sees as its, its gravest enemy, India. It does not, it wants to show it can control these nuclear weapons, be, and it, you know, it's not going to give them to Islamists because, you know, it's, the nuclear weapons are the crown jewel of Pakistan's, you know, defense against India. And they, they will, I had somebody ask me here if, if militants were to surround a Pakistani base that had nuclear weapons on it, would the Pakistani soldiers uh, fight the militants and, and prevent them from seizing the weapons? And I think they absolutely would. Um, uh, and that's before, again, all these videotapes came out. And I really think that uh, in the, the Taliban have overstretched. They attacked the, the, the headquarters of the Pakistani army also in the last year or so. And I think they've, um, there's more and more of a sense, I hope, among Pakistani soldiers that you know, the Taliban is their enemy as well. So I'm, I'm, uh, it's back to this broader dis decision, to, are they, when are they going to go into, into North Waziristan? Yes. Well, I have a question. I'm an instructor. I am a lecturer at MPS. I spend a lot of time in Afghanistan. And 
my sense is that in Afghanistan, and particularly the Taliban with the Quetta Shura, is moving further and further away from the sort of pan-Islamic emirates and its cosmic war and Persian word, and more and more into a national political movement. I was wondering what your feel is about the Pakistani Taliban factions, the Haqqani and the Persian and former Persian and Basid factions. Are they more interested in Pakistan as a, as a country, as a political movement, or are they more interested in broader jihadi ideology? Um, again, with the big caveat of all I can talk about is you know the the, the group of people I was with. Um, I I you know that's again that's another million dollar question. You know can the you know are there is the Quetta Shura more moderate and do they just care about Afghanistan and if there's a timeline for withdrawing foreign troops can they be reconciled with? I don't know. It's definitely worth trying. The Haqqanis and the young people I met see themselves as as definitely as part of a broader Islamic movement. Um, I had young guards and, and commanders come in and talk about some legend. I mean, it's just it's 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 sort of a cliche, but they you know it's like an alternate universe. And they told these stories about a prophecy where an, an army carrying white flags will emerge from uh, Khorasan, which is the ancient name of Afghanistan, and return and retake you know the holy cities, you know Mecca and Medina from you know this apostate regime. And so these young guys are so excited, they really, you know, they think of beyond Afghanistan. They, they you know, Osama bin Laden was referred to as Sheikh Osama. Uh, the 9-11 attacks were, you know, a, a Mossad CIA conspiracy to occupy Muslim lands. Um, and, it, and it was, um, and the videos I watched with my guards were very much about the, the Islamic Ummah as a whole being insulted, and, and, and it very much was a religious war that it was, in, uh, you know, forced conversions of Muslims um, and footage of, of Kashmiris being abused, uh, of Pastil Palestinians being abused, of Chechens being abused, and it wasn't simply about an Afghan national movement. And again, sorry, <laughs> broken record, that's why the tribal areas, I think, are so uh, important, because it's a fulcrum where... Uh, Siraj Haqqani, the head of the Haqqani network, grew up surrounded by Uzbeks and Arabs. Now, this is his world. And I, and I got the sense, and it's not scientific, but I had the impression that, that the young Afghans and Pakistanis in the tribal areas are much, more, much closer to that sort of Arab, uh, hardcore Al-Qaeda mentality. Yes, sir. I'd, I'd go, I absolutely agree with you, and I, I want to say, and maybe this will sound silly, or I, and I, uh, we, the American government and the Pakistani government has completely created a, a disaster in the tribal areas, and um, there are some Pakistanis who just blame the United States solely, and there's, you're correct that in the 80s we, we created, again, this, this Frankenstein but yeah, and you're, I, I thank you for saying that, that part of the problem is this uh, policy of neglect for 60 years in the tribal areas. But again, I, you can't go in and build schools unless at least you control 
the roads and the towns itself, there has to be security in these areas. Um, one, uh, one thing that would be, one concrete step would be the, and I don't know if this has happened, but there was talk about um, reforming the, um, I can't remember the exact name, the political, well, the political agent, but also there, there was the, under previous rules, and this is again the Pakistani government policy, political parties weren't allowed to operate in the tribal areas. Yes, it's reforming, and it, has it been reformed or not? So currently, no political party can go in and operate in the tribal areas of Pakistan, and it's a basic problem, which, uh, you know, there's been this past reforms of where you would have political agents. It's a British system where essentially there's a, all of the basic governance things that you have in other parts of Pakistan, political parties, a free press, an independent judiciary, none of that has existed in the tribal areas for 60 years. And it's going to take, you know, 10, 20, 30 years to change all that. And it, it was the Stone Age. Um, and I guess I would, uh, it's all of the above. I mean, I, I do think you've got to first get in there and secure these places. Um, you know, you, you can't, I mean, right now, according to, when we were there, there were Arabs and Uzbeks just lounging around the bazaar in, in downtown Miramshah. <laughs> And, I, and it's, the Pakistani forces are on their bases, and I don't blame them, and it's very dangerous and a very difficult fight that they face. But, you know, it's, a, it's completely controlled by the Taliban. And, and I'm not it, – it's got to be first military force followed up by political, you know, uh, efforts, you know, and then most of all development and education efforts. There have been programs, I think, to put in radio towers and have radio stations in the area, and the Taliban simply blow up the radio towers. And it's 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 a you know it's a it's a really difficult problem, um, and we should respect also Pakistani ideas on how to get in there and how to improve the situation, and not lecture them, and not force sort of Western development style projects into these into these areas. And a last thing, and, and you know better than I do, and you'll always know better than I do. Um, one of the things the Taliban has done is also systematically target the tribal system in the in the tribal areas. I think more than 900 tribal elders have been killed in the tribal areas. And I'm not saying that in the tribal system, which is based on these shuras, and it's, it's male-dominated, and it's sort of this, you know, it's an old-style system that in many ways is inherently sexist, and it's, it's not a great solution. But um, building on those existing um, organizational structures is one way to kind of, I think, make progress there. And the, the, the Taliban have just decimated that system. Um, there's many local tribes that I think are alienated from them now. Um, um, and the tribes are skeptical of the Pakistani government and skeptical of the American government because they haven't had help for so long or, or serious help for so long. So um, the last thing, um, I said that I told you this anecdote last night, but um, I lived, and some of this was in the story, but just again the Stone Ages and how, you know, I, I was angry at the commanders who kidnapped me and I felt sorry for my guards. Um, they were these very young Afghans and Pakistanis who knew nothing about the world outside of Afghanistan and Pakistan. Um, one young man, he was actually high school educated, I was surprised, but, he, 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 but the whole philosophy is, you know, all that should matter is your obedience to God. Your only relationship that matters is your relationship with God. So, you, you know, when I would say I miss my family or, you know, blah, 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 they would see me as as weak and wrong, and they tell all these young men that they shouldn't care about their families. And a key part of this kind of brainwashing that goes on is separating these young people from their families and saying they should only care about their relationships with God. And I, I lived with this suicide bomber for six weeks, and I said, well, aren't you going to miss your parents or your siblings? And he's like, no, they don't matter to me because all that matters to me is God. And he saw me as this weak, you know, atheist because I cared about my family. Um, he thought that a necktie was a secret symbol of Christianity, um, he believed that all Muslims in Kabul, and then another guard said this too, all Muslims living in, all people living in Islamabad are not Muslims because they live under an apostate regime. And they, you know, I had, you know, these young men like cheer when bombs went off in mosques. Uh, there was one bombing in the spring that killed like 50 people in a mosque. And, uh, you know, it was extraordinary that they basically didn't consider these people fellow Muslims because they had been so brainwashed about, you know, in this ideology, and they were so isolated. And again, that, that's why the Stone Age analogy is so, so important and so true. Uh, the last thing, and again, I said this last night, but I, had a, I talked to a young man who was a student in a madrasa, a religious school in Miramshah, 
and said to him, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? Um, if there's peace in the region, what do you want to be? And his first answer was, I want to be a suicide bomber. You know, I want to, I want to go straight to heaven. I said, all right, well, what if there's, uh, there's you know, security? What's your second choice? What do you want to be if you grow up? And he said, I want to be a mujahideen. I want to be a holy warrior. And I said, all right, come on, come on. Let's say there's, you know, there's total peace and security. You can be anything you want. What do you want to be when you grow up? And he said, I want to be a Muslim. And that's the sort of the ideology that, sort of, that, that we helped create, and we all have to work together to counter. Um, and it has nothing to do, and I, I don't, I'm not, and never will, and you know, I don't understand Islam, but as far as my experience goes, you know, that has nothing to do with Islam, I believe, according to my uh, Muslim friends. So that's how isolated and twisted this, this, place, this place is in, in North Waziristan, and how the local people there are victims of many policy mistakes the American and Pakistani governments have made together over the years. Would you talk briefly about your analysis of the role of India in this situation? Um, I don't think India has helped. Um, India has six uh, consulates in Afghanistan. Uh, they've got one in Kandahar, down in the, you know, in the uh, close to the Pakistani border, another in Jalalabad. There's no need for India to have six consulates in Afghanistan. And uh, um, it just plays on the Pakistani military and the Pakistani ISIs and securities about what is India doing. Why are they... There's a sense among Pakistanis that they're being surrounded by India. And India is sort of flexing its muscles. You know, it's, it's growing, its economy's growing, but there's no need for, uh, for all those consulates. Um, and then, you know, there are, I don't know the exact thing. Um, there, again, th this kind of internet stuff that goes around, they, they say there, are like, there was a horrific bombing um, last month in Peshawar in a market, which is frequent, frequented, uh, I think many women go to it, and uh, there was a story in the, in, in the New York Times about it. And many Pakistanis said, I just can't believe uh, any Muslim would carry out this kind of attack that killed so many women and children. Um, and they believed it was sort of Indian intelligence. Um, I don't believe Indian intelligence is carrying out any of the bombings in Pakistan. I, I, based on what I saw in the tribal areas, there are Taliban. They are attacking the, the, the Pakistani state. They do want to take over Pakistan. And they, they want to create an emirate there. Um, at the same time, I think there's a chance that, Pac that India is creating problems in Balochistan. That's a separate part of Pakistan where there's a, there's a Baluch uh, independence movement, and they're actually nationalists. Uh, they're not, it's, it's not a, um, uh, it has nothing to do with radical Islam at all. There's a chance that India is sort of funding or helping that insurgency. That again creates anger and frustration and suspicion among in the Pakistani army about India being in their backyard, India trying to destabilize um, Pakistan. So it's, again, if, you know, it's a very difficult thing. It's like, oh, well, they, you know, the United States should just solve the Kashmir dispute, you know, but this has been an intractable dispute for, for decades. Um, it's all very complicated, but, but I, uh, the, that broader dynamic is uh, a Why, why would problem. it be in India's interest to have the Taliban successfully roiling Pakistan? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I guess a cynical, you know, Indian interpretation would be you're, you're, you're just keeping your enemy weak and you're tying up the Pakistani army. Um, but I, I think a more long-term, you know, Indian view would be, you know, we don't want a destabilized country uh, on our border. And it's, it's much better to, um, you know, to try to, to try to stabilize the two. Again, a, a, a blatant effort at positive stuff, and I, I talked about this last night, but there's an effort by the two, two of the largest um, media groups, uh, privately owned media groups in India and Pakistan. The Times of India is one of them, and then there's a Pakistani group uh, um, that runs Jang and Geo, uh, the, the TV station I was just talking about. And they're working together on this joint project where they're, uh, and it's completely private, it has nothing to do with the, the, um, the governments, but each paper you know, on January 1st ran a, um, it's a, the program is called Passion for Peace, and there's uh, each newspaper had on the front page, the Pakistani one on the front page on January 1st said, Love India. Uh, the, the Indian one on the front page, they had a headline that said, Love, Love Pakistan. Um, there's a joint documentary project where Indian crews are shooting documentaries on certain projects in India, and Pakistani um, are, crews are shooting uh, documentaries on the same subject in Pakistan, and then the crews are meeting in Dubai, editing the 
documentaries together, and then they'll both air on independent, privately owned stations in India and Pakistan. And separately, they've started a, they're going to start a joint um, reality TV show where one Pakistani university student goes to India and studies in a university, and his life is sort of followed as he's a Pakistani in India. And one Indian student goes to uh, Pakistan, and you know he exists as an Indian in Pakistan. And again, these will be shown on these independent stations. And I think that's a you know um, those are an example of the you know the positive sides of the um, of what's happening in the region, and and it's you know it's not hopeless. Other questions? Yes, sir. I would say, and I didn't mean to be too critical, again, I think the Pakistani army has made great progress in a lot of areas. Um, um, it's just this, this North Waziristan issue. Um, and then, and it's interesting, and again, many people here are more of experts about the region, uh, particularly Pakistani nationals. Um, and I've had American, uh, former American intelligence officials tell me that like, the ISI would do raids any time they asked for them when it was in Karachi, Lahore, or Islamabad. And, you know, and this gets into the sort of ethnic issues in Pakistan in that the army and the ISI are predominantly Punjabi um, you know, or Sindhi to a lesser extent. And the reason that the ISI is less effective in the tribal areas is that in general kind of Punjabi you know, or Sindhi Pakistan hasn't, doesn't, they can't operate you know, well in the Pashtun dominated areas. So it's, it's not simply a question of the Pakistanis refuse to do it. it it's very hard, I think, for them to, to, to even control these areas, period. I think that um, uh, sending in American troops to do any of this kind of stuff would be a disaster. It plays completely into a sense of American occupation. It, it creates oxygen, as they say, for this kind of, these insurgencies and stuff like that. And my answer, and it's not a perfect one, in Afghanistan and Pakistan you know, is train, train, train. Like, uh, again, in the 90s, a sense of the betrayal and the distrust in the Pakistani military is that um, after the Soviets withdrew from Afghanistan in 1989, the U.S. suddenly got very tough on the Pakistani nuclear program. I mean, we had known for years Pakistan was building a nuclear bomb. When they were our allies against the Soviets, we let it, we let it go. Um, after that, uh, after the Soviets withdrew, there were sanctions against the Pakistani military, um, uh, all um, of the training programs with American and, and Pakistani military uh, stopped. Um, Kayani, the current you know, army chief in Pakistan, studied at Fort Leavenworth um, in, in the 80s before they canceled all these programs. So those have all started again. And I would just say it's, it's um, the philosophy even of a lot of American military officials is that um, it's always better to have Afghan or Pakistani units go in and carry out raids and searches even if they're, you know, in the short term, less effective than having uh, a foreign presence there. And um, the numbers uh, aren't exact, but I believe the U.S. has trained about 750,000 police and soldiers in Iraq. Uh, Iraq is roughly the same size as Afghanistan, and they've trained uh, roughly a fifth of that number in Afghanistan. Like, we have done a pathetic training effort in Afghanistan, it's a harder training effort in Afghanistan because the people, there's much lower illiteracy rates. But it's, again, I would say train and fund, um, train and fund the, the militaries in those two countries, you know, versus sending in Americans to do that. And you have to be patient um, and understand the, the, the many complexities they're dealing with on their own. Yes, sir. Thinking about the character of President Zardari, it seems that uh, uh, he 
how to she get I mean she uh, get the money in, into the pocket. So then the president of Bangladesh he is the top of the nation of the market. So thinking about those two factors, uh, you are entirely on the true the intention of the Pakistan to completely clash the Taliban. What, what do you think about it? Um, I. I think there are. I think that uh, there are Pakistanis that really do oppose the Taliban, and I want to give, you know, the Pakistan Army credit. Uh, Two thousand Pakistani soldiers have died fighting the Taliban since two thousand one. I think that it's only been um, in the last couple of years, you know, that the Pakistanis have been more serious about confronting the Taliban. I know that you know the, the theory being that they're just milking this thing. They want to have a small kind of low simmering Taliban issue, and they can get. I think the U.S. currently gives $6 billion a year in aid, uh, civilian aid to Pakistan. I think a third of the Pakistani military budget is American aid now. Um, but I really believe that, that when the Taliban went into SWAT, when the Taliban attacked you know, GHQ, the headquarters in Pakistan, and then in terms of Zardari, you know, yes, he's corrupt. You know, the Taliban killed his wife. You know, they assassinated Benazir Bhutto. You know, I, I think that, that there is a... And this is only, I would say, in the last year, there is a growing commitment among Pakistanis to really counter the Taliban. Um, so I, 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 at this point, I don't think that's true. I don't think they're just playing a game. I would have said that about Musharraf, you know, up until maybe 2005, 2006. But, you know, this is a really serious problem. Hundreds of people are dying. Zardari is under tremendous criticism because he can't stop these suicide bombings. So I, I really do think it's, it's, it's gotten beyond the, the control of the... Pakistani government. Yes. Um, you're right, and there's again this anger among Pakistanis about American lecturing about how they should respond to militancy, and, and, and it's a big problem. And I think it's continued with the new administration. There was a hope that there would be a change in tone, but I don't, I don't think it's changed. But I guess on the one of the core issues, and there was, a, there's a, there was I think, a big disagreement about sort of who the Taliban are um, and what do they want. And again, I'm, I mean, I just, again, I'm not an impartial observer, but the young men I met, the Pakistani Taliban and the Afghan Taliban, they don't, you know, one idea is, well, the Taliban, they just want control of the tribal areas in Afghanistan and just leave them there. They, they believe it is their religious duty to enforce hardline Sharia, to stop girls from going to school across all of Pakistan and across, you know, and, and, you know, and maybe they were talking tough because they were around an American reporter, but I, that's honestly what they said. And you saw that in SWAT when they went in and destroyed hundreds of girls' schools. So I, I don't, I, I think that um, the Americans have, to lecture le Americans have to lecture less, but I think some, maybe the Pakistanis have to admit that these guys are a very dangerous thing to Pakistan itself. And it's not simply a question of if U.S. troops withdrew from Afghanistan, the Taliban would just go home and, and they would leave 
the rest of Pakistan alone. I don't think that's true. And then in terms of, you're absolutely right that the progress that's happened isn't because of, you know, big aid programs. And this is completely pie in the sky, but uh, I get this sense, particularly among educated and, and well, and the, the Pakistanis that have done well economically in the last 10 or 15 years. What frustrates me most, and this was because I was based in India and would go, always go into Pakistan, again, if, if there was any way, there's, there is no trade right now between India and Pakistan. And it is, it, you know, one thing that would, would, again, pie in the sky, but if there was any way to reduce tensions and increase trade between these two countries, it's amazing what could happen in this region in terms of natural gas coming across Afghanistan down from the Stans or even from Iran, uh, just the trade that would, would flow between Afghanistan and Pakistan into India and, and back and forth. And I, I, you know, a key thing is a growing economy, whether you're talking about social reform or you know, uh, reducing militancy. So again, I'm not saying the US government should be able to solve the Kashmir dispute and the India-Pakistan thing. But, but dealing on that, that level or trying to somehow help on that in a back channel would be a, a very productive thing versus lecturing the Pakistanis about how to counter the Taliban. And there's no trade between India there's and none. Pakistan? There's none. Right now, my only, there's a one border crossing, Wagga, where um, literally the Pakistani trucks back up to about 100 yards from the border crossing, and then the Indians trucks back up to about 100 yards from the border crossing. And then on the Pakistani side, there's... Uh, can't remember the colors, but the Pakistani porters are in orange shirts because they have to be tracked by these army troops that are standing on either side. And the Pakistani guys put, you know, a barrel of, of uh, dates or cotton or something on their heads, walk to the actual border, um, and then take it off their heads, hand it to the, to the Indian porter who's in an orange smock or whatever color, and then he takes it and, and loads it in the back of an Indian truck. And this, and none of that existed until, uh, I don't know, 2003 or 2004. And it's the potential of that market to take off is amazing. And economy, you know, India's economy is growing. Um, Pakistanis see, you know, Dubai's having its trouble now, but Pakistanis see how Dubai is going forward. And particularly when Musharraf declared a state of emergency, there was a sense, I sense among Pakistanis of, you know, this is a pivotal moment in this country. Again, a positive thing in Pakistan was this lawyers' movement, which is essentially for the rule of law, for the building of institutions in Pakistan that can get out of this cycle of army rule and corrupt civilian rule and stronger institutions. Again, that's a non-government development. But there was this, this sense among Pakistanis, like, you know, this is the moment when, you know, we need to move forward. India is sort of taking off. Dubai is taking off. And they want Pakistan to be part of that. Um, and, and they, you know, they need to do that on their own terms. They, again, they don't need America lecturing to them, but they can't ignore, the, I think, the very serious threat to, to Pakistan that the Taliban represent. You know, it's, go ahead. But I would disagree. I, I think there have never been bombings in Lahore before. There's never been bombings in Islamabad. Uh, there's, I mean, Baitula Masood is, and Hakimullah Masood have said, they warned them. They said, if you come into South Waziristan, and, 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 and I apologize again, I'm not unbiased on this. You know, if you come into South Waziristan, you know, we will unleash bombings across this country. And they have. And hundreds and hundreds of Pakistanis are dying. And I don't, there, there was religious violence in Karachi but there, there, was, there was not the same, you know, there's never been bombings like there have been in Peshawar in the last two, three, four years. And there, there was nobody in Swat, you know, the Swat Valley. They went in and they, you know, burned schools and beheaded local people. And that's, that's not sort of the traditional, you know, Mohajir tensions in Karachi. It's, it's a much more serious. Well, I, we, we got one okay. more question over here. We can, we, I, can, I want to talk more afterwards because okay. I don't know. I'm not Pakistani, and I'll never understand Pakistan as well as a Pakistani. We have room for one more. Yes. Thank you for giving this uh, very fascinating talk. My name is Akbar. I'm from Kennedy School. I have just two comments. The first thing is, uh, are we not over obsessed with one target group in Pakistan, which is Pakistan military? I think the kind of engagement, the kind of training and partnership has been with Pakistan military. They won't need to deal with the intelligentsia, academics. 
Hearing 19, 20 students from different countries doesn't know or would speculate who can be the next RBC. But if you ask them any Pakistani academic, they may be at loss to say anything. So there's need to intervene, as I said, about all these issues, the other sectors which are permanent long-term solutions. <coughs> and maybe the other comment is that maybe Pakistanis won't like that much lecturing, but there is a need to have more dialogue between the two publics, and that may be at the academic level, at the institutions, where this talk, this environment, they will be very happy to listen, that there is an understanding of the issues on the both sides. And I think that would be very helpful. I agree, and, it, and there's, um, giving more aid to the Pakistani army isn't going to stabilize Pakistan in the long term. It, it's institutions, and there's a lot of criticism of, uh, you know, Zardari and all this stuff, but, you know, it's really important that he, whatever the criticism are, that, that governments be able to, f to finish their terms in office. And this is what happened in the 90s, the earlier experiment in democracy. There was always these, you know, forcing out of, of Nawaz Sharif and Benazir Bhutto. The institutions, you know, the Supreme Court, the rule of law, and again, my experience living in India versus Pakistan, tremendous similarities between India and Pakistan. And India is just, you know, has been lucky in some ways, but the Indian Supreme Court is a strong institution. Um, India's independent media is a little stronger. Its parliament's a little stronger. And I'm optimistic that, that with time, Pakistanis themselves will strengthen these institutions. And simply relying on the army, as the U.S. did throughout the Cold War, isn't, you know, isn't the answer. You're, you're absolutely right. David Roden, thank you. Welcome back.